Awesome. Good morning, all. Uh, can you hear me? Good? Okay. I can't hear me, so that's fine. Um, yeah, so we wanted to spotlight our college ministry uh, because I'm really excited about um, what God is doing, is building a foundation there, hearing some great things. And I think we're just going to continue to extend our reach to this next generation. And so perhaps... Um, you're a parent of a student, or uh, you know someone that lives close to you, or you see someone around that, that would really benefit from being involved in a Christ-centered community. We really want to encourage you to invite them out, or if you're in that age group, come out and check it out if you haven't yet. There's going to be some information uh, at a table they got set up in the foyer, so you can grab that on your way out as well. A couple other announcements real quick. Um, tonight, we're having our second Sunday, and uh, we, uh, we're joining together actually today uh, as a church-wide day of fasting, so maybe uh, you haven't heard this yet and you already had breakfast, but that's okay. Um, perhaps you've never fasted before and you're like, I don't know if I can do this. I'm already hungry. I'm already thinking about lunch and the sermon hasn't even started yet. Hey, there is something very powerful about denying um, things that our flesh wants and turning that time to really meditating on the scripture, spending time in prayer, and getting just really attuned with the Lord. And we really believe that the Lord said, if, if we seek him with all our hearts, we'll find him, and we just want to see what God has for us as a church uh, in this community for this next season. And so uh, what does that look like for you? You need to pray about that. It's not a legalistic aspect of you must do A, B, C, and D, but um, as the Lord leads you, you might skip a meal, you might skip a snack, you might... Uh, just take some time that you normally wouldn't have to just sit with the Lord and spend time in prayer. We encourage you to do that and then meet us back here tonight, 6 o'clock. Uh, we had a special guest worship leader and his wife joining us tonight. It should be fun. And a time of small group prayer and, and just entering this new year the right way. So we really encourage you to come back and be with us at 6 o'clock. And then, ladies, we want you to make sure to sign up uh, as soon as possible, the 12th is the deadline to sign up for this women's uh, conference we're having on Saturday. Debbie Bryson, she has walked with the Lord a long time. She has a powerful message, and really her heart is to help women fall in love with the Word of God. And that's a great way to start off your disciplines this, this new year is just gathering a new hunger for God's Word. And so you can sign up in the foyer on your way out. You can sign up online at graceontheweb.org under the events tab, and you want to make sure you, you get invited. Um, and Debbie recorded a little invitation uh, for you ladies, so here's that. Hi, beautiful ladies. I am so excited about coming in just a few short weeks, and I love the beginning of the year. It's like fresh snow, and some of you live in snow country. I grew up in Missouri, and I loved looking out the window and seeing fresh snow in the morning. No footprints, no mistakes, no dirt on the snow, no tire tracks. And that's what 2022 is to you. Let's start out fresh. Let's step into God's word. Let's let him lead us and guide us in the paths that are best for us, that give us wisdom, that fill our cup so that we can pour out in the many places that we need to pour out, not of ourselves, not of our frustration, not of our fears, but of the fluidness and the goodness of God, because we've spent time with Him. He's changing us from the inside out, and may He teach us to love His Word like never before. See you soon. God bless you. So you guys are not going to want to miss that. It's going to be a great time. If you have teenage daughters, bring them. If you know a friend, it's not just uh, isolated here to our church. It's open to everybody. So that's going to be a great, a great time together. All right, this morning we are going to be jumping back into our study in Hebrews. I'm excited about this very important topic this morning. This morning we are going to be talking about rest, which is not an excuse to fall asleep during the sermon, okay? Uh, it's tempting. It'll be tempting but very powerful subject about Sabbath and what it means to the Christian. Let's stand with God's word in hand. If you would, open up to Hebrews chapter 3. We're going to be starting at verse 16, where we left off last week, and we're going to be reading together until chapter 4, verse 11, covering this very specific section and topic. 
I will read the even-numbered verses, and if you would join together in the reading of God's Word on the odd-numbered verses, so read this passage. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 16 starts, For who, having heard, rebelled? Indeed, was it not all who came out of Egypt led by Moses? There's a nice, beautiful vision to have on your Sunday morning. And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but those who did not obey? Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear, lest any of you seem to have come short of it. For we who have believed do enter that rest, as he has said, so I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. And again in this place, they shall not enter my rest. Again, he designates a certain day, saying in David, Today, after such a long time, as it has been said, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Therefore, there remains a rest for the people of God. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. Heavenly Father, we ask that your word would come alive to us, that as we go through it, more importantly, it would move through us by the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, to some, a chapter like this might seem like meaningless uh, theological exercise, but Lord, it is not that. It is an invitation that is for today to every human soul that finds himself wearied by life and religion and sin and death to enter into your rest and to experience the fullness of your promises. Lord, teach us how we can do that today. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Last week, we looked at a comparison that the author began in in Hebrews chapter 3 between Moses, the Hebrew hero, the founding father, so to speak, uh, coming after Abraham, was sort of a both a political, spiritual, and even a military hero within Israel, the one through whom God God brought the law uh, to Israel and, and established their national identity. And the argument was that to these Hebrew believers, we might call them completed Jews, Jews who had come to know their true Messiah, Jesus, their temptation to move back into the law, into the old covenant, and into the system under Moses was being met with with this argument from, I believe, the Apostle Paul who was saying, why would you want to go back to Moses when everything that Moses was about was speaking to, to the ultimate one who would be the fulfillment of God's law and the prophets, Jesus Christ. He, is, he deserves the better honor even than Moses. Moses is a hero, but he would make the argument Moses is still part of God's building, whereas Jesus is the builder himself. He is the one who deserves the higher honor. Moses was faithful in his house, but where Moses failed to deliver God's people into the promised land, Jesus succeeded. Jesus was faithful in all of his house, in God's house. And so then as he presents this picture of Jesus deserving the better honor, he started to outline the dangers of what happens 
when people don't heed and listen to the voice of Jesus speaking to them because of the hardness of their heart. And he brought us back to an example of the Israelites as they exited their slavery in Egypt under Moses, uh, the deliverance of God through Moses, and came to the, the border and the boundary of God's promised land, the land that he said was flowing with milk and honey, a land promised to their fathers in Abraham. And yet they did not enter because their entire 40-year journey was marked with complaining and unbelief and sin and rebellion and disobedience and hardness of heart towards God. And God said, I want them to enter my rest. I want them to enter this peace and this prosperity and this blessing I have for them, but they're not going to because they refuse to believe. They refuse. They walk in unbelief. And in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 16, he continues this thought and he introduces this idea of God's rest. And he, he asks a, a series of three questions, of, of uh, three categories regarding unbelief and entering into God's best, God's rest. And we see that in verse 19, he plainly says that we see that they could not enter because of unbelief. So if you were to draw this umbrella, the umbrella portion would simply be unbelief. That is, the, that is the underlying foundational reason that they didn't enter into God's promise, unbelief. But notice that he describes unbelief and characterizes it by three different words, three different activities. In verse 16, he describes unbelief as rebellion. Notice he says, or he asks, for who, having heard, rebelled? Indeed, was it not all who came out of Egypt led by Moses? So the first sign of their unbelief was a rebellion against the authority of God. While Moses was on Mount Sinai receiving the law of God for the people of God, what were the people of God doing? Well, they were having a party. And they got Aaron to lead the party. And they all put in their jewelry. And they made a golden calf to worship as their God. The most famous rebellion is, is known as the rebellion of Korah, where Korah and his clan basically uh, bucked the authority of, of the leaders that God had established in Israel, Moses, and, and they despised the Levites, and they basically were tempting the people's fleshly lust for, for power and saying, you, we're all, we can all minister as, uh, in the tabernacle, and who put Moses in charge? And he brought us out here to die, and the people started to get disturbed and started questioning well, his rebellion ended up in 15,000 people being dead, either by swallowed up in the ground or, or by a plague because of this righteous anger of God against them. And here's the thing. Un unbelief is not merely a, a, a confessional. And when I say that, what I mean is people can be confessing that they believe in God and at the same time be bordering on walking in unbelief. And the first sign of that is a rebellious attitude toward God's authority. I know God said this, but I would rather do this. I know that God wants this for my best, but I think for my best I should have this. And that rebellious heart is a first sign that I don't really believe God. I don't really believe that what God said is best. I don't really believe he has my best interest in mind, and therefore I want to do it my own way. And that leads into the, the second characteristic there in verse 17 of unbelief, and that is simply this concept of sin or direct disobedience to God. He asks now, with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? They were constantly doing things against God, and again, in the rebellion they fell, and at one point in time, they sinned through complaining again against Moses and God, and, and serpents came and struck many of them down. And sin brings forth death. And so this attitude of rebellion, this attitude of sin, and then thirdly, an attitude of disobedience in verse 18. And to whom, he asked, did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but those who did not obey? When I hear that, phrase, I, I, I'm reminded of those almost chilling words of Jesus when he challenged what some might hear. 
when he challenged those who were following him, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and yet you do not do the things which I command? It's one thing to confess Jesus is my Lord. It's another thing to live as though Jesus is in charge and to submit to his authority. And yet they did not obey. And so these things reflect the heart that is on the path toward hardness and unbelief. And he continues this train of thought in chapter 4 with a modern-day application for his listeners. He says, therefore, and what's the therefore? Because. Because God's people at one point in time in, the, in history refused to enter into God's best blessing, promise, rest for them because of their unbelief, therefore, since a promise of entering his rest remains, let us fear lest any of you seem to have come short of it. Here he says, there is still an invitation out into the rest of God, which I'm going to define for you in a moment. But let us be warned that in order to experience the rest and the best and the blessings that God wants for us, we have to enter into it. There's this warning of falling short of it. We're going to look at this more in depth. But to talk about this rest for a moment, this rest of God, I'm um, admittedly jealous of of my eight-year-old son, Kellen, because he has this uncanny ability to fall asleep on command. <laughs> the other night, I was putting him to bed, and we said our prayers, and we did our thing, and, and he was just so tired, and I, I rubbed his head, and I said, good night, bud, time to go to sleep, and boom, he was out already. I mean, he just like closed his eyes, and that was it. Those of you who know how to do that, uh, I just envy you. I'm the type of person, man, I lay down, I lay down on my bed, and it's like, my brain just starts moving, and it doesn't stop moving, and it just, I should have done this, and what about this? And, and it's just that place of constant turmoil, it seems like. But Hebrews 4 is almost God saying, Christian, human, find your rest in me. And for some, it's as simply as Closing your eyes and trusting God. And for some of us, it's a little more restlessness than it is rest, isn't it? Hebrews 4 speaks to us of a spiritual and eternal rest that's available to the human soul. And thankfully, it instructs us on how to enter that kind of rest that God provides and offers. In short, this chapter details that God's rest is available but can only be accessed through faith. As we ask ourselves the question, what is the rest of God and what does it mean? This chapter has sparked a lot of theological debate. In fact, in the Greek language, the author, who I believe is Paul, uses three Greek tenses, okay? A tense meaning past, present, future. In the first tense, it's called the auroris tense in the Greek, okay? And the auroris tense is a continual action. So it's something I do, and then I must continue to do. So when he speaks of the rest of God, it's something that I must continue to pursue. And then he speaks also in the present tense. Today is the day. So God's rest, whatever that is, is available now, right in this present moment. But he also speaks about the future tense, that God's rest is something that, that is coming, and it's something that we're going to experience forever. And so if I could define and sum up what it means to uh, define the rest of God, I would say it this, this way. The rest of God implies an entrance into God's promises now and a residence in God's presence forever. Or eternally. So when you hear me talk about God's rest, I want you to think entering his promises now and entering heaven forever. And his rest is even here. It's amazing what the rest of God can do to a human being. You see, God designed humanity to be at rest in every way. 
And when we talk about rest from a biblical perspective, we're not not necessarily talking about uh, rest from exhaustion, but we're talking about rest in a completed work of God. God created the earth in six days and he rested on the seventh day. Did God rest on the seventh day because he was tired? No. It's because he was finished. His work was complete. And he said, now I want humanity and I want everything to enjoy this perfect state of rest, of completeness. Rest implies peace, a lack of struggle, tranquility, and this is how it was in the Garden of Eden before sin entered the world. But work, which we sometimes think as the antithesis of rest, is not a post-sin invention. Let me ask you a question. It's not a trick question. Did Adam and Eve work before they sinned? Yes, they did. Did God not say, I want you to give every animal a name? That sounds exhausting to me. I don't know. I mean, there's a lot of animals out there. I want you to steward everything I've created. That's a job. And yet it was a job that didn't exhaust them because they were doing it hand in hand with God. There was no broken fellowship. There was no sin that affected the body. There was no sin that affected the relationship. It was just, this is what I was created to do. And when I do what I'm created to do, there's a rejuvenation and a strength that just comes along with it. And then sin enters into the world. And what happens? Well, bearing children becomes painful work. Tilling the ground by the sweat of the brow under the curse becomes painful work. Now it's work to maintain the marriage relationship. It's work to build the family. It's work to provide. And it's all work that exhausts us. I would think it's safe to say that overall, spiritually, physically, mentally, humanity is tired. I mean, you know humanity is tired when they start calling death resting in peace. We've all experienced exhaustion in some way. But here's what God said. God wanted, even after the fall, to leave a remnant of his rest with humanity to give them a glimpse of what he intended life to be like under his authority, at peace, fully satisfied in him. And so after setting the precedent of rest on the seventh day, Then Moses comes along and he brings forth the law, the Ten Commandments. He gives us that fourth commandment. Thou shalt honor the Sabbath day and keep it holy. In fact, we read it in Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 11, where the Lord said, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and he rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. So the Sabbath day was created by God to be a day of Worship and rest and rejuvenation for the people of God. To remind them what life was to be like under God's authority and rule on that one day where they rested from all their worldly labors and they were just in sync with the Lord. Now it's interesting that the rabbi, the, you know, the tradition moves along, hundreds of years pass by, the rabbis all come and they all give their opinions on what the Sabbath day meant. And the rabbinical teachings, by the time Jesus showed up, all the Pharisees and the Sadducees and all the religious leaders had self-defined in a tyrannical way what the Sabbath actually meant. You know, God was, was fairly broad with it, And the intention was, I want your heart. I want you to be with me. Not to be focused on so many other things. And then Jesus comes along, and he's constantly breaking the Sabbath and making all the religious leaders totally angry with him. Right? Jesus heals someone on the Sabbath. How dare you do that? Why? Because because obviously keeping our rules is more important 
than human beings. And that's what religion does. It gets wrapped up in all these different things. One time Jesus and his disciples were walking through a field of grain and they grabbed some grain off the, off, just plucking it as they went and rubbed it together so that they had a snack, something to chew on, something to eat. And the Pharisees saw it and oh boy, they, had, they just flipped out. How dare you? Why? Because Jesus did something wrong? No. Jesus broke their rules. He broke three rules. Number one, according to the rabbis, on the Sabbath, you can't walk more than 1,999 paces. So you better count. You better be burdened with counting your steps on the Sabbath. And if you're walking through a field, clearly you walk more than you should. And then if you pluck a grain off of one piece of wheat, you harvested. And because you harvested, you worked. And if you rub it together to get the, the kernel out, you threshed. You were, that, now you're guilty of threshing on the Sabbath, right? And they turned what God wanted to be a blessing into a burden for everybody. This is why Jesus said in Mark chapter 2, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. And then Jesus makes this incredible statement. Therefore, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. That's a very important statement for where we're headed. Jesus said, the Sabbath is not so much about a day, it's about me. It's about who I am and what I will ultimately offer humanity. I put it like this. The Sabbath day under the law was a foreshadowing of the permanent rest of God that would be restored to humanity through faith in the finished work of Jesus. That day that God established and said, keep it holy, actually was pointing to a person, Jesus, who would offer the rest, the ultimate rest of God back to humanity. Have you ever thought about this? Out of all the Ten Commandments, we keep, we, we would say that they all still matter to God, right? We believe that thou shalt not murder. Yes or no? Should not commit adultery? Should not covet? Should not have any gods? Should not steal? Should not lie? Right? All of the commandments, we would say, yes, we're, we're obligated to keep that. And then all of a sudden, honor the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Well, good thing we're not bound to the law anymore. Good thing we're not under that old legalistic system where we have to take Saturday and cease from all our work and not do anything and be concerned about. Did, did God stop caring about the Sabbath? Absolutely not. He cares about it just as much. This is a serious deal to God. Serious. The penalty for not keeping the Sabbath was severe. It's a big deal to God. Well, Josh, you're scaring us all. No, no, listen. Listen carefully. The bigger question we need to ask is, does keeping the Sabbath, do we keep the Sabbath in the same way under the, old, under the new covenant as they did under the old covenant? That's the bigger question. Not, is the Sabbath important? Yes. Does it matter to God? Yes. Should we keep it? Yes. How do we keep it? That's the question. We're going to learn in Hebrews chapter 4 that we keep it by living in a state of faith in Christ. That is how you keep the Sabbath. For the Sabbath is not a day, it is a person. It is a person who finished the ultimate work at the cross. Remember this statement? This, blew me, this blows me away when I think of it from a, when I try to put myself into a Jewish mind. Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, Jesus says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And when he talked about labor and heavy laden, he's not, he wasn't talking about people who were tired from a long day at work. He was talking about people who felt weighed down by the religious system of Judaism and what it had become under the rule of the Pharisees and the rules and all of the stuff that God didn't intend. He said, are you tired? Are you weary? I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find what? Rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So twice here, Jesus uses the word rest. Okay, here's a quiz, an experiment. I want you to Tell me the first thing you think of that comes to mind when I say a word, okay? Hershey's. Okay, good. We got, chick we got kisses and chocolate. Okay, that that's close enough. 
Super Bowl. Obviously. Obviously. We know where this is headed, okay? All right. Mickey Mouse. Donald Duck. I heard that a lot. I just thought Disney. Okay. Rest. Sleep mattress, like uh, sleep number bed, uh, Sunday afternoon nap. What is it? Okay, for the Jew, you hear the word rest, and what word do you think about? Someone. You hear rest, and you think Sabbath. Sabbath. You're a Jew, you hear the word rest, and your mind goes to one place, Shabbat. The seventh day, the rest that God has commanded to us. And so think about this. Jesus comes and he makes this revolutionary claim. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you Shabbat. You will find Sabbath for your souls in me. And the people are just blown away. They're thinking, so now when I think of the rest of God, I'm not supposed to think of the Sabbath, I'm supposed to think of Jesus. And what he invites me into. Well, what does he invite us into? Several things that we need to understand about what God's rest requires in order for us to experience it in our lives. Number one, if you're taking notes, jot this down. Verse two teaches us that God's rest requires faith. God's rest requires faith. Look at verse two again, shall we? For indeed... The gospel was preached to us as well as to them. To who? The Israelites in the wilderness. But the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. Apparently, hearing God's word and heeding God's word are two different things. Here he says, the Israelites heard the gospel. What gospel? Enter into the promised land that I promised you. Go across the Jordan. Find peace. Inhabit and inherit the promise. That's, that was their gospel. And they didn't, why? And, the, and we know it's been established up to this point. They didn't because of their unbelief. They didn't believe God. They thought they had a better way. They didn't mingle their, the truth they heard with trust. In order for God's blessings to be received, the truth has to be mixed with trust. And not just a belief, it's a trust that causes me to act based on what I know God said. That is what faith is. It's a substance of things unseen. The reality of things hoped for. You see, faith requires us. I love it how one commentator, Andrew Lincoln, he put it like this. Faith brings into the present the reality of that which is future, unseen, and heavenly. God's rest, God's promises are not always things that we can tangibly see. They are things that we believe by faith in order to receive them and experience them in our lives. A couple of things I see here. How was the gospel not mingled with faith? Well, they didn't believe, but When I think of this, I don't merely think of heaven. Yes, God's promise of heaven only comes to those who place their faith and trust in Jesus. That is a requirement to receive that eternal rest of God. But I wonder how many people that say, I believe in Jesus. I believe he died for my sins. I trust in God. Are actually living a life where they're settling for second best. They are living a life of constant discouragement and constant defeat because they will not and they refuse to act and believe the promises of God to them now. You see, you see, the people of Israel didn't experience what God wanted for them because they wouldn't believe God. They didn't want to take a step of faith into the unknown. They don't want to rejoice in trials. They don't want to risk uncertainty in order to be obedient. They don't want to give up that certain sin that they've been holding on to. 
They hear the truth every week and convicted by the word of God and they are exhorted by other believers. But if you never mix what you hear and what you know with the faith to act, there's going to be some aspect of what God wants for you and me that we're going to miss out on. We have to have faith to enter God's rest. We have to believe that he knows best. You know, it takes faith. I'm, I'm, not a, I'm not a person who loves letting go of control of things. I don't know about you guys. But it's, you know, patience is something that has to be worked into me constantly. I updated my computer last night to the latest operating system. And even though it told me, remaining time, one hour, every 10 minutes I was over there looking at it figuring if I could do something to make it go faster. I didn't want to miss, you know, I just, I just have to, I got to be involved somehow. That's not how it works with God. If you want God's rest and you want God's best, you're going to have to learn how to trust him by faith. Well, I'm so tired of being lonely that I'm just going to force this relationship, even, even, though I'm, I'm, even though it seems like God's not in it, I'm just going to force it you won't receive God's rest. Well, I, I mean, I know, I, I, I know that I, I'm just tired of being stuck in, I've just got to do, so, do something to force my way out of this lot in life that God's given me. I'm just so discontent. Well, at the experience of your integrity, your obedience to God, your, your character, at what length? No, you and I have to learn how to have faith, how to trust God, So God's rest requires us to mix what we know with faith, the ability to trust him and to step out in obedience to his command. Number two, we're told that God's rest requires immediate action. God's rest requires immediate action. Verse three, for we who have believed do enter that rest, as he said. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, that is the Israelites in the wilderness, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has spoken in a certain place of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this place, and he's quoting Psalm 95, you jot it down and, and read it on your own, it's pretty amazing. They shall not enter my rest, verse 6. Since therefore it remains that some must enter it, and those to whom it was first preached did not enter it because of disobedience, again he designates a certain day, saying in David, Today, after such a long time, as it has been said, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Okay, this is like the fourth time he said this. So if it sounds like I'm repeating myself, it's because he repeats himself. We talked about this last week. What is the best time to obey Jesus? Now, right when you know what he wants, right when you're convicted of his truth, right when, you're, right when you read the word, right when you're asked and requested of something from him, that is the time to respond to his invitation. Here we find that God set this precedent. He rested on the seventh day. We blew it. God says my rest still exists. The, the, he issued an invitation. The people of Israel didn't enter into it. The invitation is still out. Now the, the doorway into it is faith in Jesus. But then King David prophesied of this moment. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Paul puts it like this in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2. For he says... In an acceptable time I have heard you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Today, this season, every breath we have, there might not be another opportunity to respond to God than you have, than the opportunity you and I have right now. It's kind of frightening, though, when he says, when he puts the emphasis on us, 
Do not harden your hearts. So it's almost as if though hardening your heart is a slow process, it is something that we actively do. And we do that by our lack of response to the voice of God. When he speaks, obey, have faith, and keep a soft heart towards him. The third thing we find out about God's rest is it requires ceasing from our own works. It requires ceasing from our own works. Look at verse 8. For if Joshua had given them rest, then he would not afterward have spoken of another day. So even though Joshua took them into the promised land, they were still constantly at battle, at war with their enemies. They never fully possessed the land that God gave them. They, re- they received a sense of national rest, but they didn't receive that spiritual rest. So he says in verse 9, There remains therefore a rest for the people of God, for he who has entered his rest, important, has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. So God works six days and he rests the seventh day, setting a model that whoever enters his rest will cease from his own works. What works is he talking about? Well, there's a play of words in verse 9. Here he uses the word in the Greek that stands for Sabbath, indicating that the true Sabbath that we find in Christ is one where we rest from all our fleshly efforts to try to impress God, all our religious works, in order to accept the finished, the single work that Jesus did once and for all on the cross. Here's what he's saying. If Jesus, when, God, when God looked at all of his creation after he finished, what did he say? It is very good. God rested. When Jesus hung on the cross, and he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what, to, what they do. Into your hands I commit my spirit. And right before he breathed his last, what did he say? It is finished. What's finished? The work that is required to find peace with God and ultimately enter his perfect rest. That work was finished by Jesus on the cross where he bore our sins and he rose again from the dead, entering into what we might call the Sabbath season of salvation. I don't know if there might be some in here who have struggled with this, but I have in my Christian life. At times where I know I'm not measuring up to God's perfect standard of holiness, or I'm not exactly where I know I need to be as a husband or a father, and I know I'm not exactly where I should be disciplined in my relationship with God, I have doubts in my heart that says, certainly the cross of Jesus isn't enough. to accept someone like me. Certainly there has to be something more I need to do to earn the right to receive God's forgiveness, to earn the right to call his love and eternal life mine. Certainly it can't be enough. And and here he says, no, entering into the rest is the declaration that what Jesus did is more than enough. Even in my failure, even in my flaw, Even in my sin, even in my stains, the work of Jesus is enough. There's nothing that can be added to it. There's nothing that can be taken away from it. He made the way possible for salvation. Are you grateful for that today? I am grateful that I come to Christ in my weakness and I call upon his name and he sees me and dresses me and clothes me in his righteousness simply through faith that his work is finished. So he who enters his rest ceases from his works. And again, what, he, what he's meaning here when he says works is any effort that we try to make to earn favor with God through something we do, through our performance. It's not possible. Jesus is the one who fulfilled it. But then... In verse 11, he, he, he sets out to offer us a little bit of confusion. 
Because he almost says the exact opposite. In fact, number four, point four, is that God's rest requires diligence. In verse 11, he says, Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. Literally translated, and you might have this in some of your translations, depending on what translation you have. Paul, here he says, Therefore, let us work to enter the rest. It's like, wait a minute. So you're saying, he who enters his rest ceases from all his works. Let us therefore work to enter the rest. I don't know. I'm, I'm confused. What is this work? The word means to diligently and continually pursue. Go back for a moment to the words of Jesus I spoke to you earlier. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Okay? Jesus says, my job is to give you rest. Your job is to come, say it, come to, come to me. That's the work you need to do, to come to me, and I will give you rest. Oh, thank you, Lord, you're going to give me rest. What are you going to give me, a bed, a pillow, a blanket, a recliner? And then he says this, take my yoke upon you. Wait a minute. A yoke is an instrument of work, not rest. Take my yoke upon you. And then he says, my burden, my, my burden is light. Okay. If we put this all together, it's almost as if Jesus is saying, I know how to give a weary human being rest, not by taking away their work, but, but teaching them how to carry it in my strength. You see, when you're yoked with Jesus, he is the one who takes the majority of the weight. When Jesus is saying, I want you to put my yoke upon you, and that yoke, of course, is where oxen would be yoked together to accomplish a job, Jesus is not saying, come work harder. Jesus is saying, come follow me. Don't do the work without me. Do it with me. Don't go off on your own in a way that's going to make you exhausted. Walk with me. And when we have a perfect pace together and I'm carrying the heavy weight, you will always be productive and you will always be strengthened. Resting in Christ is not a cessation of work. In fact, we could put it like this, that in Christ's rest, we are to cease from our own works to try to work for our salvation, but we are, be to, we are to be about God's work in working from our salvation, in tandem with, in alignment with, in the strength of Christ, where we find strength in the work instead of exhaustion. I think of Deuteronomy chapter 5, where God challenges people, and we're almost through, but listen to this, it's powerful. God correlates the weight of sin to Sabbath. In Deuteronomy 5, verse 15, the Lord speaks to his people, and he says, Remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there by a mighty hand and by an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Here he's saying, you remember what life was like in Egypt? You had a taskmaster. You were enslaved by Pharaoh, and your back was being broken by the amount of work you had to do, and you were exhausted, and you were broken, and you could barely lift your head, and I brought you out with an outstretched hand, and a, a mighty arm, an outstretched hand. Therefore, keep the Sabbath. Why? So you can remember how much lighter life is under the yoke of God as opposed to the yoke of Egypt. Following me? We were under the yoke of sin and death. We were slaves, the Bible says, to our sinful passions and desires. Life apart from Christ was breaking us spiritually, mentally. We were in Egypt, and, and he says, therefore, because I've delivered you with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, enter into my rest in Christ. Take my yoke upon you. So you can be reminded that my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Hudson Taylor, 
famous missionary to China, spoke a little jingle. He was quite fond of quoting. Bear not a single care thyself. One is too much for thee. The work is mine and mine alone. Thy work is to rest in me. The work of diligence is to continue in Christ, continue to trust Jesus. That is the work we are to do, not working for our salvation, but working from our salvation. The rest he mentions here is not so much a rest of recovery of strength, but a rest in the satisfaction and contentment in the finished work of Jesus. Someone once said that resting is being in God's perfect design. And when you and I learn how to be who God designed us to be and be content in that and to be ordered in, under Christ, all of a sudden, the words of God come true. Even youth grow weary and young men stumble and fall. But those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up on wings like eagles. They shall walk and not grow weary. They shall run and not grow faint. When you yoke yourself to Christ, the strength is yours. There might be more work, but it's worth work that brings strength. When we're diligent in prayer, we find strength. When we're diligent in the scriptures, we find strength. When we're diligent to obey Christ, we find strength. When we're diligent to repent and surrender, we find strength. Let's be honest, sometimes following Jesus can start to feel like a heavy weight. You have the burdens of life. Every year your responsibilities grow, your relationships get more complicated, you have kids and sports and hobbies and finances and jobs and trips and houses and yards and in-laws and is anyone exhausted yet? <laughs> and now you want me to, to, to do more? To get involved in Christian community, to prioritize my church attendance, to give generously, to live sacrificially, to serve those around me, to read my Bible and pray every single day, to serve my neighbors, to go to, I'm just so tired of thinking about what it means to follow Jesus. If, if that's where you're at, I want to suggest to you that you're trying to follow Jesus without walking with Jesus. And here's what I want you to do. You're going to think I'm crazy. I want you to stop. But Josh, I serve on the worship team, and I serve on the usher, and I, and I do, do a homeless man, and I'm so tired. Stop. But, I, but they need me. God wants you more than he needs you. Trust me. And to work for Christ without relationship with Christ not only doesn't accomplish the work that God wants you to do, but it it exhausts you to no end trying to do it. Prioritize your relationship with Christ first and let everything else flow out of that relationship. Corey Tin Boom, she said it this way, look within and be depressed, look without and be distressed, but look to Jesus and be at rest. I know this is a bold statement to make, but I think most of our exhaustion in life comes somewhere in a broken relationship with Christ. And I just want you to think about that. Josh, I'm, I, I just can't, I don't have time. I'm in such a hurry in my life. I love what Dallas Willard said. He said, hurry is the greatest enemy of our spiritual life today. You must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. I'm going to stop here in the passage because the next few verses require a whole study within themselves. Powerful. He's about to tell us that, there, that the, the answer to all this is the word of God, which is living and powerful and sharper than two, any two-edged sword. We're going to get into that next week. But I want to leave you with four questions that you can ponder and ask yourself as you think, am I living in God's rest? Am I experiencing his promises to the fullest or have I settled for second best? Number, number one, first question I want you to ask yourself, what are the top three to five things that are wearing you out the most in life? 
What are the top three to five things that are wearing you out the most? I just want you to answer. There's no answer to this question that's right or wrong. Just Just ask yourself. Physically, work, injury, sickness, pain, emotionally, stress, anxiety, worry, relationships, the loss of a loved one. Spiritually, sin in your life, areas of disobedience that you're still walking in. Mentally, the problems you're trying to solve that you can't keep up with and that you have no control over. What is it that, that is tiring you out? There are some things in that list that you will not be able to change the circumstances of, but by entering God's rest, God might change your perspective of what you're going through. Which leads me to the second question. Within your priority system, what things need to be rior- What things need to be reordered around the value system of Christ? Okay, let me ask you that. In your priority scheme, what things need to be reordered around the value system of Christ? We have a natural inclination as people to things that aren't godly when we are tired. (laughs) Right? People respond differently. If you're just stressed out, exhausted, and just at the end of yourself, what is it? I just need, I just need a drink. I just need a vacation. I just need to put on my pajamas and veg out for 42 episodes of my favorite TV show. What, what is it? What is it? Now, I'm not suggesting God hasn't given us some things that bless us. I love, I love you know, when I'm stressed and tired, I, I love to take a bath. I know I shouldn't have too much information, right? (laughs) Just like it. But here's the thing. If those are our go-tos, we have misprioritized our life for actually getting what we need the most. Prioritizing the value system of the kingdom, the commands of God, pursuit of Christ will always give us what we need even though our flesh tells us it's the last thing we need. You will experience this battle. Some of you are today when you said, I'm going to do the fast. And your body's like, no, you're not. Because you're going to want that hot dog during the football game. And you're going to want, and, and you're, you're just at war within yourself because it's something so small and something, and yet there's this thing in your flesh But trust me, if you're one who says, I'm willing to prioritize my schedule around things that matter to God, I'll go in my closet for 15 minutes and I'll just pour out my heart to Him. I'll read a psalm when I'm struggling with a decision I have to make and let the words that come there, let me just wrestle with them and let them comfort me. I'm going to go get away from my own thoughts and serve somebody else. I'm going to give up what I want and give to someone else as Jesus would. I'm going to make sure I come to the second Sunday night of prayer. I just keep doing that to you guys. I'm I'm, I'm serious though. And and this is not, again... Me trying to put extra burdens on you, what I'm, what I'm trying to say is we wear ourselves out when we misprioritize the things that we actually need. We think we need A, B, C, and D, and we might need some of A, B, C, and D, but what we need more is more of Jesus. Question number three. If entering God's rest requires faith, what steps of faith do you need to take next? Has your life become stagnant? I I hit this place where I'm just good. I don't want to risk anything else. What step of faith do you need to take next in order to experience that completion, that satisfaction, that contentment, that rest of God? Maybe it's a step of faith to reconcile with someone that's been tense. Maybe it's the step of faith to forgive. Maybe it's a step of faith to have a hard conversation. Maybe it's a step of faith to get involved in a ministry or go on a mission trip. Maybe it's a step of faith 
to give something to someone that God has just prompted your heart. Maybe it's a step of faith of sharing the gospel with your neighbor when you thought you would never have the courage to do so. Whatever it is, don't settle into a life that lacks, dis- that lacks uh, discomfort. Don't allow yourself to settle in a relationship with God that is boring and stagnant and does not require you to do anything risky. Take a step of faith and watch how God meets you with his rest. Finally, the fourth question. Knowing that my ultimate rest as a Christian comes in heaven, how can I enter into his rest now? In other words, how can I let my eternal destiny inform my temporal reality, my day-to-day decisions? I'm going to heaven. I hope everyone in this room is confident that they are going to heaven based on the finished work of Jesus Christ. But if we are going to heaven, if we are, as Paul said, fixing our eyes on the things which we don't see, how does that inform the decisions I make every day here and now? Am I about my father's business? Or am I wearing myself out and exhausting myself with things that are going to lead to no eternal fruit and no eternal value. See, this is about priorities. And I don't want to minimize the warning when he says, let us fear lest any of you fall short. But it's not as a slap on the hand. It is, it is oh, if you only knew, if you only knew the good intentions of God if you only knew the joys of heaven, if you only had a mind that, that no mind, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, and no mind has comprehended the things that God has prepared for those who love him, if you only knew how good you, he wants your marriage to be, if you only knew how fruitful he wants your life to be, are you gonna fall short of that because you just didn't want to? You just didn't believe him? And you just thought, my way is better and this sin is better than anything God could give me and Or did you trust him? Today is an invitation to trust by faith in Jesus who wants you to enter into his perfect rest. Amen? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the invitation that you still extend to us You haven't given up. You haven't closed the door. It's day. It's today. To enter into this promised rest that started on the seventh day of creation, that continued in the Sabbath day celebration, and now is made manifest and completed in the person of Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray first, if if there's anyone in here And listen to my words. If you don't know Jesus, if you have not accepted for yourself the fact that he did the work that you couldn't do to bring you to relationship with God and to give you the gift of heaven and that there's nothing you can do to add to it or take away from it and you need to place your faith in Christ today, now is the time. Today is the day Don't run from God anymore. If you hear the uh, feeling, a pulling, a tugging in your heart, that is the voice of God saying, don't harden it. Don't Don't let your emotions and your heart be calloused. Listen to my voice. I'm calling you into my rest. If you need Jesus in your life today and you want to make a decision to trust in him, And to believe in him, I'm just going to ask you to raise your hand right now. I want to pray for you. If there's anyone here, you're not confident, you're not sure about your eternity or your relationship with God, but today you want to be sure, raise up your hand really high. I want to pray for you today. I see your hand right there. Anyone else just wants to say yes to Jesus today? In the back there, I see your hand. You can put it down there. I see your hand. It's a couple of you who raised your hand and I want you to just pray this prayer. Confess it with your mouth. Repeat this prayer after me and I want you to do it 
not like a prayer is going to save you, but it's your faith. It's your faith that you're calling upon a God who wants to save you, and you're trusting that. Would you repeat this prayer after me? And, and church, would you pray along with these two who raised their hand and just encourage them in this prayer? Jesus, I come to you today, and I confess that I am a sinner. I believe that you did the work of salvation by dying for me on the cross and rising from the dead. I place my future into your hands and ask you to forgive me of my sin. I trust that you are willing and able and I give my life to you today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. If you prayed that prayer, and even if you prayed it and didn't raise your hand, I'm going to be right up here, and I'd like to, I'd like to meet you and talk with you um, and just pray with you. Uh, but for the rest of us, may we be diligent today to take his yoke upon us and to enter into his rest. May you go in peace. God bless you guys. Have a great Sunday. And look forward to hopefully seeing you tonight, 6 o'clock.